You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Well, good morning, North Can Chapel. Good to see you guys. That was, that was rousing. Well done. Um, well, I was out for the last couple of weeks and thought I'd give you a quick little report from, from Guatemala. Um, it's going to be one part report, one part confessional. So, yeah. Whenever you go to a new culture um, or a culture you're unfamiliar with, one of the great ways to kind of build a relationship is to ask, what do you do for fun? Or, like, what do you do in your spare time? And so, like, as you might assume... I practiced saying that I was a fisherman, or I fish, right? Which the Spanish word is pescador, which sounds awesome. You say, soy pescador. It just sounds cool. And so I practiced saying, like, I fish, you know, when I go camping, I fish in the boat, I fish in the stream, I fish with my friends, I fish alone, right? So I practiced that. Well, I, um, I took French class at Hoover back in the day. My Spanish is not very good. And so intending to say pescador, fish, uh, what I actually said was pecador, which if you know Spanish, that actually translates as sin. And so I may have inadvertently told a group of Guatemalan preschoolers that I'd sin with my friends. I sin in the woods. I sin by myself. I sin in a boat. I sin in a stream. So just feel the need to confess that, get ahead of the lawsuit before it shows up on the door. Anyway, no, I'm thankful to be back. Thank you that we get to go. Um, I'm thankful for the English language. So this is our 11th and final week in our summer teaching series through 1 Peter. Um, this has been a great ride. We do these like just verse-by-verse verse runners a couple times a year through a book. And um, I love it because I love this like deep dive into study. I love to just, you know, kind of dig deep in God's Word and then just like show you guys what He showed me in, in the course of the week. Um, but I also love that you got to hear from um, so many different voices on our preaching team here at North Canton Chapel. We've got a pretty deep bench when it comes to preachers, and so... I love sitting under those guys also. I love learning from them. Um, so here's where we're going this morning. Uh, we're going to close out First Peter, Peter's final words to these Christians scattered in small but vibrant house churches across 300,000 miles of frontier wilderness in the back eddies of first century Roman Empire, Christians who are staring down the barrel of persecution, eager to follow Jesus, but very unsure of what the future holds, Christians who want to make a difference, but sometimes just get a little discouraged. Sound familiar at all? And so Peter, probably by now in his late 50s, weathered and well-seasoned, still very much in love with Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Peter's closing words, we'll see in a minute, rest on three very distinct commands. And so we're going to look at all three of those commands this morning, and then we're going to kind of close out with like a book-wide summary, like, okay, just what does 1 Peter have to say? What do these big themes kind of emerge? And I think as we look at this, you'll find yourself bonding to our spiritual ancestors in a very unique way. Uh, for those of you that like big summary statements in front of one message, here it is. The goodness of God has conquered the darkness of our world. 
That's where he's driving this last little bit. And I'll let you know, just as I was like wordsmithing that statement a little bit, at first I wrote it wrong. I wrote it in a very non-gospel way. The goodness of God will conquer, which is true. But the gospel says that the goodness of God has already conquered the darkness of our world. That is this gospel declaration, and it's the declaration that we're going to kind of sit under today. So um, one kind of quick housekeeping word before we get going this morning. Whenever we do these verse-by-verse series, which we do a couple times a year, um, I usually get an email or a text or a conversation that goes, man, that was really great. Where can I get more of that stuff? Like, I want to study the Word of God that way. And so um, in brief response, um, I love that you love this. I love that you love Sunday mornings. But I also want you to love Monday through Saturday mornings, too. Um, I believe a lot about this book. I believe that God wrote this book very intentionally. I believe you don't need a Bible college or a seminary degree to study this and get meaning from it. Um, God wants to meet with you through his word. This is written for you. And so if you're looking for some some tools or maybe how to get started in your own Bible study um, on your own, because in my mind that's always better than Sunday mornings, two quick things. First, Get yourself a good study Bible, and here's one that, that we recommend. It's just called the ESV Study Bible. It's a great modern translation that's faithful to the original Greek and Hebrew, but also very, very readable, and it's got a ton of study helps in there. If you get stuck like I do with like places and names and stuff that's unfamiliar, uh, this is going to help you out. So you can get it on Amazon, I think, for like 40 bucks. And so if you don't have a hard copy of God's Word, I commend that to you. It's a great investment to make. Um, second thing, maybe you're like, well, okay, I want to I get a little bit more. I want to study a little bit deeper. Um, we've created an Amazon list for you. Uh, you can head to ncchapel.com resources. And if you don't know what an Amazon list is, all it is, just think about like a bookshelf that we've just kind of curated for you. There's about six or seven resources on there. You could get them all for under 100 bucks. Um, and they're great, like just Bible study tools uh, that you can use. These things I use in my study. I have for years. Um, They're affordable, they're accessible, and they're very, very helpful. And so um, you can head to ncchapel.com slash resources, and we've just kind of put that for you, um, hoping that maybe you'll take this next step in your journey with God's Word. And if you're watching online this morning, our online community pastor, Matt Brumfield, is going to put the link in the comment thread. So enough with the intro. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Three commands and then three big idea statements. Let's get to it. I'm going to read the whole section up front. And then we're going to kind of pull it apart. So take a look in verse 6. Here's what he says. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him, be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then his personal email signature type remarks at the very end, he says, by Silvanus, or Silas, a faithful brother, As I regard him, I've briefly written to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who's at Babylon, 
who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. So hopefully you caught those three commands, kind of strewn across what Peter has said. Let's take each one kind of one at a time. So head back to verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. That's the command. That's the what to do. But then he talks about how to do it. Casting your anxieties on him. That's how you humble yourself. We're going to talk about what that means in a minute. And then the why. He's the what, and then the how, and then the why. He says, because he cares for you. So first the command, humble yourselves. That's the command. And then Peter intensifies this image, though, doesn't he, when he says, under the mighty hand of God. Now that phrase is kind of supposed to make us quake a little bit. That phrase, the mighty hand of God, is used very, very intentionally. Here's the thing. You and I are prideful. Just does a whole lot of good just to admit that up front. We're prideful. We can't get away from it, every one of us. We like our own way. We are not naturally humble people. My inner, unseen, well-manicured pride causes me to live in the mistaken assumption that I am smarter than God. And you're the same way. It sounds like this. Don't worry, God. I got it covered. Check in with me later. And so using that phrase, under the mighty hand of God, Peter's kind of saying, look, you have a choice. Humble yourself, or he will humble you. Psst. Choose the first one. So how do you do that? And then Peter unfolds this rather beautifully into the how. And he answers with this beautifully relationally toned phrase. He says, how do you humble yourself? You humble yourself by casting your anxieties on him. The Greek word for casting here literally means to throw upon, to throw, to chuck it away from yourself. Here's what's under that. It's a decisive act It's an act of will. Like, I am choosing to give this thing up. I'm not going to hold on to it anymore. Mm. It implies relief. Like, I'm getting this off of my back, and I'm going to feel better when I do. But then third, and this is what separates Christian hope, so much different from the rest of the world, is that It implies a relationship. I'm not throwing these anxieties out into the ether somewhere or just like sitting there chanting ohm or like sipping my green tea. Like I'm giving this to somebody. I'm giving my anxieties to a person, a person who you remember has already invited us to do so because he said, hey, I've got an easy yoke and I've got a light burden, so I got room for your garbage. If you have to contextualize this into modern language, it might sound something like this. Here, Jesus, you deal with this because I can't do it anymore. I am firing myself from my own expectations to solve this problem. You ever fired yourself? It's a lot of fun. So how do you stay humble? You pray. You pray. Now, why is that the answer for Peter? Humble yourself, casting your anxieties on him. Why is prayer the undoing of my own pride? Because prayer starts where my abilities stop. Here's what Peter wants us to see. Worry 
can be a form of pride because I keep my anxieties rather than casting my anxieties. It's all worry is. It's me going, I can do this. Now, a quick word. Not all anxiety has its roots in sin. We talked about this earlier this year. We did a, a teaching series called Stuck where we talked about what does the gospel have to say about how to handle anxiety biblically and how to walk with God through this very present feeling of anxiety that we all have from time to time. You can go back and listen to it if you want. Anxiety is not necessarily the result of sin in my life, but it could be sometimes that the root cause of a good bit of my anxieties is just me. Sometimes. It could be it's just my broken, prideful heart that prevents this posture of prayerfulness sometimes. And so Peter's saying, look, cultivate a posture of dependence on God. Get used to not solving your own problems. Because, and this may be me, but I doubt it, the greatest hindrance to me actually giving Jesus my anxieties is fighting so hard to believe that he actually wants them. Anybody else ever wrestle with that? Really believing that the Lord of all creation wants my anxieties. He wants my fears. To believe that he's actually interested in me. To believe that, I, that he is not indifferent to my pain. To believe that he's emotionally available, emotionally ready, eager to receive me, ready to love, eager to welcome, because he cares for me. In verse 7. Because he cares for me means I am not an inconvenience, that my needs are not a problem. And so let me speak that over you. You are not an inconvenience to the holy God of the universe, and your needs are not a problem for him. Because he cares for you means you are welcome, you are expected, he has set the table for you, he wants to commune with you, you are seen, you are known, you are loved. That's so hard to believe, isn't it? Why? Because everybody else is living with such thin emotional margin that it might be easy to suppose that God is the same way. Right? Everybody else is going, gosh, I don't have enough emotional margin to deal with my own stuff, let alone yours. And Jesus says, hey, come. I've got an easy yoke, and I've got a light burden, so I've got room. You throw all your stuff on my back and let me carry it for you. It's okay. This is the God I want to be for you. And he's always got room. Anybody else thankful that that's who our God is? Like always. He can't not be compassionate. And that's exactly why Peter supports this command with because he cares for you. Because he knows that so many of us still need convinced of this truth. And so whether or not you can believe it right now, at least I want you to hear this. God cares for you. Exactly as you are. He loves you as you are, not as you should be. Now here's the rub. I believe that up here. And you do too. Right? I'll bet if I asked you, does God care for you? You'd go, oh, yes, 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 of course. But the distance between here and here sometimes is like miles apart, isn't it? Like I can say it with my head, but I don't believe it in my heart. And so I stay this stuck. And this is massive oversimplification, but I'm starting to believe that the essence of Christian maturity, actually growing up in the Lord, is just closing the distance between what I believe about God up here and what I actually live out about God out here. And as I grow up in the Lord, that distance just shrinks a little bit until my life actually starts to look like what I believe. Humble yourselves. 
casting your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So let me urge you, I don't want you to necessarily view this as a command, although it absolutely is an imperative verb in the Greek. View this as an invitation, an open door. So that's number one. Command number two, verse eight. Be sober-minded, which again, always sounds so funny coming from Peter's mouth. <laughs> just can't get over there. Like, Peter? Dude. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Again, like Peter, you fell asleep at the wheel. Jesus asked you to pray in the garden, and you were charged for not being watchful. And then here he is saying, learn from my mistakes. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Why? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. Interesting image, isn't it? Because Jesus is also called a lion. Turns out this one is a little bit more like a kitten in the grand scheme of things. He's seeking someone to devour. And don't you hear like the Jaws theme like in the back there? Like This is a little spooky. We're meant to sense a very deliberate contrast here. You've got this warm, welcoming God who cares for you. And then you've got this cold, prowling enemy. Very different. We're going to get to him in just a bit, but for now, the command, be sober-minded, be watchful. They're both, in Greek, both aorist imperative verbs. And all you need to know about that is the strongest imperative verb you could possibly use. They're like bold, italics, caps lock, underline, highlighted, like draw attention to this thing. This is what Peter wants for us. What's Peter doing? He's warning a group of Christians against something that many of us also might feel, that Understanding the sovereign care of God, verse 7. Cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Don't look at the sovereign care of God as an excuse for spiritual inactivity. It goes like this, right? Like, well, God's going to take care of it. Like, I don't have to worry. I don't have to do a thing. God's got me. He knows how the world all wraps up. So I'm just going to, like, sit here and just try not to get in trouble. God's sovereign. He's in control of the universe. There's nothing I could do to thwart his plan. I know that. So I'm just going to sit here and twiddle my thumbs and wait for Jesus to come back. That's called spiritual fatalism. And that's Peter going, no, don't do that. Don't slip. Why? Because there's an enemy out there who's hunting you. It's incredibly strong language. The word he uses for enemy here is the word that you would use in this culture as the opponent in a legal trial. The one who stands up against you to prosecute you. Which, please follow me on this, it seems to imply that Satan's primary tactic is to object to what God has already declared you to be innocent of. To say, you're not saved. God can't love you. God doesn't care for you. You're nothing. This is how Satan works in our lives. You're completely alone. Nobody sees you. Nobody cares for you. You're worthless. Least of all, God. He's holy. Don't you know how much you've sinned? Don't you know how much you've disappointed him? You are never welcome at his table. This is how the enemy sounds. That's that seeking someone to devour language. Now, why does he do that? Let's lay this out. This is super important. If he can get you to doubt what God says about you, then you will doubt God's goodness. 
And if you doubt God's goodness, then you'll doubt that God even cares about you. And if you doubt that God even cares about you, then you're right back to where you were at the beginning of verse 6. On your own, alone, left to fend off the darkness by yourself. Do you see the connection here? What Peter's trying to drive at? Like, here's his word. Keep your eyes open. Keep your heads about you. Prayerfulness prepares you for spiritual warfare. And with that fresh on his readers' minds, he heads to command number three in verse nine. Resist him, he says. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Where's the command? It's right there at the beginning of verse 9. He says, resist him. Or as one commentator puts it, that the Christian response to oppression is not to panic, not to flight, but a firm resistance in the faith. Resisting sin, resisting the enemy. North Canton Chapel, there is no substitute for hatred of sin. To hate what the enemy wants to do to you. In modern language, hold your ground. Don't give up the ship. And then Peter calls to mind something that, at least at first reading, sounds a little odd to my ears. He says, resist him knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Now, why does he say that? It's a strange angle. How does the reality of shared suffering help me in understanding my walk with the Lord? Here's what I think he's getting at. The reality of global suffering is not to prompt shame in me. Like, don't you know how bad kids have it in China? You should eat your raisin bran. Look at how they're suffering over there. You should be thankful. That's not what he's getting at. That's not his heart. It's much deeper than that. It's to point to the faithfulness of God. Saying, they're suffering, and God's there. God's protecting them. Look how they're suffering for the sake of the gospel. They haven't given up, and so don't you doubt. When this comes to you, you need to know that God's already there, that God is still good. Suffering, North Canton Chapel, suffering is the school where we learn the goodness of God. But here's the problem for most of us. Most of us see suffering as the enemy to be avoided rather than the school to attend. We don't like it. Nearly 2,000 years later, after this was written, one of the enemy's greatest tactics for us around suffering is to convince us that we should, for some reason, be exempt from suffering. And here's Peter saying, no, learn from them, look at them, hear them, see them. Suffering Christians are not victims whose lives we should pity. They are brothers and sisters, family, in whose lives we should participate. It's very different, which naturally leads him to say, And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, he will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. And suffering just kind of like gallops into this triumphant doxology about God's sovereignty, right? We should see these last verses for what they really are. They're kind of the summary of the entire book which at the risk of sounding over-literary, go figure, 17th or 16th century, no, yeah, 16th century reformer Martin Luther put it this way, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, 
We will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. With that, after some passing words and some final greetings, Peter drops the mic and he presses on. Interestingly, Peter would be martyred three years after the ink dries on this letter. Leaving the church to mourn, but also leaving us a model to follow. So, I feel like it might be helpful, uh, just as we wrap up 1 Peter, uh, just to draw out a few common themes. And if you've been walking with us over the last 11 weeks, this is not going to be new information to you, but um, there's a lot that Peter talks about. There's a lot of themes that he kind of brings up throughout his letter. And so for this morning, just for us, I just want to give us three, um, three quick ones. First off, faithfulness to Christ leads to suffering for Christ. I know that's sobering, but you can't get away from it in 1 Peter. Faithfulness to Christ leads to suffering for Christ. Just getting personal, um, like I scratch my head a lot these days, like when I think about our world and like, I'm only 41, but like I've seen a lot of change in 41 years and I go, ah, like I suffer from this golden age delusion thinking that goes, I wish we were back then. Like when things were easier, you know what that, that's just a delusion, right? That's not right. I wish things were, I wish it could go back then, right? I feel like we had an easier time. I feel like life was simpler. I, that's, you know, anybody else with me in that one? Yeah, Okay. I'm glad no one said amen, because that would have been like a little bit. But yeah, we're there, right? We all suffer from that a little bit. We think that, this like wistful dreaming. I don't think it'll shock many of you to know that I'm a big Lord of the Rings fan. Fantasy and myth, dwarves and hobbits and elves on this epic quest, like with high cost, right? All surrounded by this prevailing sense of sovereignty and great consequence, there's this great scene uh, where Frodo, in case you haven't read the books or uh, watched the movies, Frodo is this hapless, innocent little hobbit who longs for his quaint and quiet life in his bucolic hobbit village, and he's pretty much cajoled by fate at the recruitment of this wise wizard, Gandalf, to go on this epic quest to take the ring, which is this symbol of power and weight and actual suffering, to take this ring to Mordor and destroy it. It's this huge responsibility for this little hobbit. And all throughout the books, or the movies, books are better, all throughout the books, he's weary of carrying this thing. But the lot of fate has fallen to him, and he kind of hates it, but he has a responsibility, right? So there's this scene where Frodo and Gandalf are talking. And Frodo is lamenting the darkness of his world and the weightiness of his responsibility and suffering that characterizes his journey. And then Frodo looks at Gandalf and he just kind of collapses into this emotional heap. And he says, I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish this had never happened in my time. Gandalf wisely says in return, so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All that we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. 
I feel that. I wish, like, the ring had never come to me. And you do, too, whatever your version of the ring is, right? Like, I wish the heaviness had never fallen on me. I wish I could give it away. Like, I wish the eagles would come and, like, fly this thing to Mordor. So, like, I could go home and smoke my little hobbit pipe and sing my little hobbit songs and, like, live out my days in quaint sentimentality and, like, this drowsy quietude. Just, like, some days the Christian experience is too heavy to bear. And that's not just a pastor thing. I know you feel that, too. I know you do. Following Jesus in a post-nominal Christian culture is a very heavy thing. It's tempting to wistfully imagine and long for better times. Denial is not just a river in Egypt. <laughs> just, just waiting. Let's let it sit there for a minute. Denial is this refusal to accept the realities of my world because I don't like the realities of my world, right? But here's what I know, and here's what Peter, I believe, really wants us to see. You will never love your world, and you will never change your world until you really see your world. And guys, I'm the worst at this, (laughs) I know that's hard to hear because denial is fun, right? Every little like secret castle in my heart that I run to for solitude and solace is imploding when I say those words. So it's hard for you to hear. It's hard for me to say it. So here's how I gospel my own heart and quicken my own courage. I could wish for different times, for better times, for easier times, but that is not for me to decide. All that we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. So here's what this means. If you are alive in 2022, that means that you have been called to 2022 to showcase the love of Christ. You are here, and that means God has placed you at this time, in this place, in this people, in this culture, for his sovereign, perfect purposes. He didn't call you for back then because he didn't need you for back then. He called you for now because he needs you now. I don't mean that to sound like a pep talk. That's just the goodness of the gospel. Like this time, this culture, this task, this journey, harder than any of us want it to be. I get that. I really do. But that is not for us to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. Do you want to grow in Christ? Don't be afraid of the journey. Lean in and look forward. Faithless is he who says farewell when the road darkens. So that's theme number one. Second theme you can kind of pull out of 1 Peter. God will vindicate his people. God will vindicate his people. Here's something interesting about 1 Peter. We mentioned this in week one, I think. Um, Peter uses the word suffering 12 times. He uses the word behavior six times. He says, subject yourself six times. He says, do good four times. You throw all those puzzle pieces out on a table and you start putting them together and you get this beautiful but befuddling picture that seems to say, live a godly life, expect suffering, do good, and trust God. That's the Christian life for Peter. And I have to be honest, like, there's something in me that doesn't like that. This, like, you, like, do good and God will take care of the rest, like... That whole turn the other cheek thing, it's kind of hard. <laughs> kind of running out of cheeks to turn sometimes, right? You are too. So how do you do that? Because that's the question that Peter's readers, and by extension us, are asking. 
Hey, Peter, you said follow Jesus. We are, and it's hard, Peter. Now we're suffering, and we want vindication. We want this to be made right. We want to get Caesar off our backs and out of our lives. When does that happen, Peter? Turns out, this do good and God will do the rest is kind of a common tale throughout Scripture. Exodus 14, you remember, Moses. They come out of Egypt, and he stands at the Red Sea in front of them, and Pharaoh's army breathing down behind him, boldly stands up in front of his people, and he says, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be silent. And then the waters start parting. Just a little bit later, Numbers 13, spies go out into the land, and they get scared, and they go, we're never going to get over there. Our enemies are too big. Joshua, you're crazy. We're going to lose. Joshua tears his clothes because his people should have known better. They've forgotten what God just did back at the Red Sea. And in a mixture of prophetic rebuke and pastoral encouragement, he says, don't fear them. Their protection is removed from them. The Lord is with us. Don't fear them. Jericho walls start falling. Shepherd boy David goes out to Goliath. And his own people right behind him Vocalize their doubts. And so David looks at Goliath and he says, yeah, you bring your sword and your spear, but I'm coming in the name of the Lord Almighty, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. And giants drop dead. You sense a common theme there? Who defends God's people? God does. And he does it in his way. He does it in his time. But here's the rub for me. Why does he take so long? (laughs) Why is he always the one that has to do it? You ever notice that? What is it about God that delights in leading us to the edge of our own abilities? It's a little sadistic, right? Seems that way. Right at the edge of the Red Sea with Pharaoh's army behind him, at the edge of the promised land with this intimidating force in front of him, at the edge of failure with five smooth stones and a slingshot. What is it about God that leads us right up to the edge? Why does he always do that? What do I need to learn at the edge of my ability that I can't learn when I operate in my own strength? I need to learn that he is enough. Because at the edge of my ability, I get him. And it requires faith. I don't know about you. Yes, I do. I do. You don't want a Christianity that doesn't require faith. I don't think you do. I think what you want, you want a Christianity. You want a religious experience with God, a relationship with the creator God of the universe that requires you to trust him. You don't want to put your head on the pillow at the end of the day and go, I did pretty good. I mean, you may want that, but not deeply. Ultimately, I don't think you do because any version of Christianity that rests on me does not require God. And any vision of Christianity that doesn't require God isn't Christianity. It's just quaint nostalgia. And quaint nostalgia is really good for embroidered pillows and cute little plaques, but it can't change the world. All of these stories in the Old Testament that are true, Everything Peter is driving us towards about one idea, that we worship a God before whom all enemies shake. We worship a God at whose feet every knee will one day bow. We worship a God 
whose honor cannot be denied, whose majesty will not be diminished, and whose glory will not be shared with any other. He rules without question, he moves without permission, and he saves without qualification. He is God, he is on the throne, he is coming back again, and he will finally fully and freely deliver his people. He's done it over and over and over again. What more proof do we need? And while we live on our borrowed time here in this temporal tent-like home, Our voices find their way to what David said in Psalm 42, where he says, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Feel that ever? Here's David's answer. Hope in the Lord. My salvation and my God. And I hardly need to tell you, the Hebrew word for salvation is Jesus' name. Yeshua. So what that means, when you really, really think about it, Jesus who stands up in defense of our ultimate vindication of lost, hopeless, we're going to die, no wait, look at the cross people. Jesus, prefigured from Genesis onward, foreshadowed, anticipated, is ours. At the edge of the Red Sea back then, or at the edge of your suffering right now, Jesus is enough. We have a, a Savior who vindicates his people. Last point from 1 Peter, and with this we'll, we'll wrap up. Point number three, Christ alone satisfies. Christ alone satisfies. Peter's life stands up as this like case study in this whole thing, doesn't it? Like you remember back in the Gospels, Peter is just, his whole life is like this study in self-sufficiency and satisfaction, on the waves, right? He tries walking in his own steam, takes his eyes off of Jesus, gulping seawater. Nope, that didn't work. In the garden, he tries his own vindication, like, Jesus is mine, you're not taking him. Whack! And Jesus takes the soldier's ear, puts it back on, and no, mercy is better. He tries, like, his own security when, like, after the resurrection, did you ever catch this, that Peter goes back to fishing? Why? Because that's what he knows. He knows how to do that world. He gets that doesn't require faith until Jesus goes, have you caught anything? And Peter goes, no. Try the other side of the boat. Oh, I guess I need you. His whole life is this visual battle, just this walking drama, veering from one thing to another, asking, what brings satisfaction? What brings me security? What can I count on? And his eventual maturity that we see here in 1 Peter probably brought on by like, you know, 30 years of instruction with Christ and then also his own personal exhaustion. He just collapses at Jesus' feet and goes, yeah, finally, I'm done. I don't want anything else. I just need Jesus. That's all I need. Just you. So by 1 Peter, we get this wonderfully rich, theologically robust picture of Jesus that 30 years older Peter puts up in front of us as if to say, I've learned Jesus is enough. Have you? In chapter 119, Peter calls Jesus the spotless lamb without blemish. He's the Passover lamb of Exodus. In chapter 2, verse 24, Peter says that Jesus bore our sins. He's the scapegoat of Leviticus. In chapter 2, verse 25, Peter says his wounds heal us. He's the suffering servant of Isaiah. This, this is Jesus. What are you going to do with him? I don't think this is news to any of you, but in case we're not clear, the world's not getting better. People are not basically good. We have not done a very good job with this place. Everyone has, including yours truly, through my willful sin, 
contributed to this beautiful but broken existence. And I don't say that to be like Debbie Downer or anything. I just say it to be like theologically expeditious. Like, let's, let's quicken this thing here. Let's just get here. Because as soon as you realize that the world is broken in a needful place, and nothing in this world can fix this world, as soon as we get there, we stop putting Band-Aids on cancers, and we start looking for real, actual, substantive, not flippant healing. And that's what Peter wants us to see. Christ alone satisfies. So what are you supposed to do with that? What are you going to do with Christ? What are you going to do with him? Is he a Sunday morning savior? You show up and just kind of meander through life. Is he just like a picture on a wall? Is he a name you say when you smash your thumb with a hammer? What are you going to do with Christ? This Jesus of Nazareth who walked the earth, died on a cross and paid a price that I could not pay on my own to restore my relationship with God. Have you asked forgiveness? Have you accepted his gift? You don't have to do anything. You don't have to work at it. You don't have to try hard. If your version of the gospel is try harder, you don't understand the gospel. Just take the free gift. Yes, the world is crazy. No, it's not getting better. Yes, you are made for more. No, you can't get it on your own. And yes, your Heavenly Father cares for you so much, He wants to just give it to you. He has called you into His eternal glory in Christ. And He Himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. I don't think there's anything that I could ask you that is more pressing than that. And I'm talking to you where I realize a lot of you go to church and a lot of you call yourself a Christian. Have you ever, ever asked for forgiveness of your sins? Have you ever come before the Lord and said, I have jacked it all up. I have broken your law. I have broken your heart. I am lost. I'm tired of just going to church and just trying to behave. The gospel is that Jesus did not come so that you could behave, but so you could be new. And today, you can have hell canceled and heaven guaranteed. Done. We know how the future ends. We know how it all wraps up. What are you going to do with Jesus? Let me pray for us. Father, we come to you, and again, we are so thankful for your sovereignty that we read these words, that you have conquered the darkness of this world. There is nothing in this world that can hold you back. Nothing in this world can undo what you have done. And although we know that there is an enemy in our world prowling around, seeking someone to devour, we know that this supposed lion has nothing on you. Lord, I pray you protect us. Protect us as we seek you. For those here who don't know you yet, Lord, please dislodge the pride in our hearts and just let us fall on our faces before you. Say, what do I need to do to get right with the Lord? Help us find this beautiful reality that you have done everything needed, everything required in sending your son on the cross. And so we say thank you for his suffering, his wounds, that we are healed by. 
Lord, we love you and we worship you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.